Well, church, how do you respond to the disasters and the devastations of your life? When things don't go as you expect them to, when the circumstances of your life end up being difficult and painful rather than easy and enjoyable, when you face challenges and trials that are beyond your ability to contain or to control, how do you respond in those situations? On the 26th of December in 2004, tectonic plates several miles under the sea off the northwestern tip of Indonesia sprang apart with the force of 1,000 atomic bombs, triggering 36 different earthquakes. Trillions of tons of water were displaced. And this massive upheaval of, wa- of, upheaval of water it generated a series of tsunamis that raced across the Indian Ocean at 500 miles per hour and tore into the coastlines of 11 different countries. Whole towns were devastated and entire islands disappeared under the waters of these waves. A UN spokesperson said that in terms of the area that was affected, this was the greatest natural catastrophe in the history of the world. According to the Associated Press, the final death toll was nearly 230,000 lives lost. It has been called the wave that shook the world. In the aftermath of these events, one observer argued that on the abundant available evidence, does it not seem that if there is or was a God, he is not malevolent, mad, or dead? Given the pain and the suffering and the tragedy of these events, the only way that this observer could make sense of what they had experienced and witnessed was to believe that God must either be evil or crazy or non-existent. In their estimation, there was no possibility that a good and loving and powerful God could have allowed such events to happen. How do you respond to the disasters and the devastations of your life? More than 2,500 years before these destructive tsunamis hit Indonesia, there was another natural disaster that devastated an entire nation and its landscape. It eliminated the nation's food supply, ruined its economy, prohibited its people's ability to worship. It was an event that destructively impacted every aspect of the entire nation's daily life and existence. And yet, one observer's conclusion and response to this disaster was vastly different from the observer of the Indonesian tsunamis. And it is this second response and the the effects that this response has on our lives that I want us to consider this morning. And this response comes to us from the prophet Job. And in a world where brokenness and suffering and tragedy and loss continue to affect so many people's daily lives, this prophetic word continues to proclaim important instruction for us today. 
So if you have Bibles, I want to invite you to turn in them with me to the book of Joel. We're not going to go verse by verse, but, but I'll point to different sections. Turn with me to the book of Joel as we consider the major message of this minor prophet. Now the book of Joel was written in response to a catastrophic plague of locusts that had decimated the land of Israel. And if a swarm of bugs, no more than two inches long, doesn't seem like that serious of an issue to you, it's because you don't know anything about locusts. <laughs> For ever since records have been kept, there is evidence of plagues of locusts swarming in the billions, which have the ability to black, black out the sun that can jump from continent to continent, wreaking havoc over huge swaths of land, and are able to devour an entire nation's food supply in a matter of hours. The United Nations Desert Locust Information Service, that's a real thing, the United Nations Desert Locust Information Service reports that during such plagues, up to 20% of the Earth's surface can be affected. And that these plagues can endanger one out of every 10 people on the planet. In his book, The City of God, Augustine recounts a plague of locusts which hit Africa when it was a Roman province, destroying countless square miles of vegetation. And after the massive swarm of locusts drowned in the sea, they washed back up on shore dead, where their rotting corpses infected the air and caused a pestilence that was so bad that more than 800,000 people were said to have died. A plague of locusts is literally a deadly, serious matter. And this invasion of which Joel writes was so powerful and beyond number, he says in verse 6, that he suggests it was a unique event in the nation's history. Nothing like it had ever happened in their days or in the days of their fathers. And it was an event that would be told of for generations to come. They would tell it to their children's children. Much like our current pandemic in its uniqueness, only with far greater impact on the daily lives of the Jewish people. The destruction of these locusts was so complete, as described vividly in verse 4, that it affected every aspect of life for every one of God's people. In verse 11, we see that the tillers of the soil and the vine dressers were affected because the harvest of the field had perished. Just like that was all gone. In an agrarian society, that would have been the work and the well-being of almost Everyone. In verse 9, we see that the priests were to mourn because they could no longer offer their gift offerings to the Lord. Their worship could no longer be performed without the grain and the oil from the harvest that they used in their sacrifices. In verse 12, we read that the gladness had dried up from the children of men. This wasn't just an adult problem, that the young people were affected by it also. In verse 18, we see that the animals suffered, the beasts groaned, the cattle were perplexed. Even the drunkards, according to verse 5, whose lives were already ruined by their addictions, were to weep, Joel said. 
because there would be no more wine upon which they were so dependent. This plague affected everyone, old and young, sacred and secular, the productive and the impoverished, human and beast. No one was left untouched. I think in our world of plenty and of protection, this is hard for us to, to even begin to wrap our minds around. I mean, we freak out and we make a run on bread and milk when there is even the threat of an inch of snow, which might possibly come in the near future and will certainly be gone the next day. That is our kind of food shortage and crisis. Most of us have no idea what real shortage or real suffering are. But this was a real shortage. Food trucks weren't going to come and bring more grain the following week. This was a long-term, all-of-life, nationwide consuming crisis that would lead to real pain and real suffering for God's people. These locusts had taken away their food, taken away their work, taken away their worship, taken away every aspect of their well-being. If there was ever a time to doubt the goodness of God, this would have been it. If, If there was ever a time to question God's existence, this would have been it. If there was ever a time to wonder if God is evil or crazy or dead, This would have been it. And yet, Joel chose to respond to these sufferings in a very different way. In fact, he chose to respond in the exact opposite way. You see, rather than wondering if their suffering was taking place because God was evil, Joel rightly understood that their suffering was taking place ultimately because they themselves were evil. These locusts hadn't come because God had abandoned his people, but because the people had abandoned their God. And so Joel rightly interpreted that God, in his mercy, had sent this plague among his people as a discipline in order to to wake them up and call them to return to him before something even worse happened to them. In fact, the first half of chapter 2 is all about a coming day of the Lord that Joel warned would be far worse than what they were currently experiencing. The devastation that they were dealing with now, as bad as it was, was, was temporary and was relatively contained. Bugs would go away. Crops would eventually grow back. But what was coming was apocalyptic in nature and would be complete in its destruction. The sun and the moon would be darkened, and no one would be able to survive it. But God, in His grace and in His mercy and in His love for His people, wanted to spare them of that greater judgment. And so He sent the locusts among His people as a form of discipline to wake them up and to set them straight. In chapter 2, verse 25, God acknowledges this reality. He says that this was all from him. The swarmer, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter locusts were his army that he sent, not for the people's destruction, 
but ultimately for their deliverance. And while that may seem harsh and difficult to accept, that God would send that kind of, of suffering to his people, while that may cause some to accuse God of being malevolent, when you consider the bigger picture, isn't it really a sign of great mercy? Isn't that ultimately what any loving parent would do to a child who is engaging in a dangerous and destructive behavior if that was what it took to wake them up before something worse happened to them? Wouldn't you do that for your child? If you had a child who was driving a car while under the influence of drugs or alcohol and you didn't take away the keys to the car, if you didn't disrupt their life and give them a consequence for their dangerous and destructive behavior, then you're not being a loving parent towards your child. Inaction in that situation would ultimately be unloving. Instead, you give them a consequence out of love. Even if they hate it, even if they hate you, even if it creates real hardship for them, you let them suffer for a little while in hopes that they will learn their lesson and change their course before they end up in a situation from which it is too late to turn from, where the consequences of their action are permanent and beyond repair. So it is here with the Lord. The sending of the locusts and the suffering of the plague is from His hand, not with a heart to punish His children, but to protect them from something much worse. It is not for their destruction, it is for their deliverance. And so understanding both the source of the locusts and the protective purpose of the locusts, in response, Joel calls the people not to run away from God, but to run to him. In the second half of chapter 1, Joel calls the people to repent. In the second half of chapter 2, the Lord calls the people to return. God and his prophet both make clear that the right response to the tragedies and the trials that they were facing was to repent and to return. And this brings us to the, to the good news of the gospel and to the, the major message of this minor prophet. Because the hope that is proclaimed in the book of Joel throughout the call to repentance is that when we return to the Lord with all of our hearts, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, when we return to our God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, when we return to our Lord in repentance, the hope is that he will relent, that he might leave behind a blessing. And that is exactly what God has done. For in response to the repentance of his people, we are told in chapter 2, verse 18, that the Lord had pity on them. And that throughout the end of, of, of chapter 2, we see how the Lord answered the prayers of his people and sent to them uh, the grain and the wine and the oil that they asked for. He promised that He would restore the years that the locusts had eaten. That their, their threshing floors, which were empty, would be full of grain again. And that their vats, which were dry, would overflow with wine and oil once more. All of the devastation that they had experienced at the hands of the locusts was going to come undone. 
The land which had been ravaged would flourish once again. Their worship which had been inhibited because of their lack of grain would be restored and would never be hindered again because God was going to pour out His Spirit upon all people so that their worship wouldn't just be the work of priests dependent upon the rules of the temple, but that all people could worship the Lord in their hearts, spirit and truth. The devouring invaders which had decimated the land would be forever removed from them and would no more hinder them. In response to their repentance, the Lord promised that He would bind up what had been broken, restore what had been lost, and redeem all that had gone wrong. All of that hope is summed up most beautifully in the promise from chapter 2, verse 32, that all who called on the name of the Lord would be saved. And isn't this what God in Christ has done for us and continues to do for us. For all of the sufferings that we experience in life are ultimately the result of sin in this world. Either ours or others. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But all suffering is ultimately sourced in sin. And, and, and just like a plague of locusts, sin ravages the landscape of our lives. It destroys and it decimates, and it causes great suffering. And yet, as bad as our suffering can be at times, it is nothing in comparison to the suffering that sin will produce at the end of time. When God's hand is withdrawn and sin's effects are full and final. So in His great love, God doesn't want His people to experience that. And so He sends the the warnings of the prophets like Joel Yes, but then he sends us much more than that. He leaves behind a blessing and he sends the provision of his son. And so Jesus entered into our sufferings. He bore the plague of our sins on behalf of, of, he bore the plague of sin on our behalf upon the cross. And in the victory of his resurrection, he promised that all who called upon him would be saved. And not just saved, but renewed and remade and redeemed. Jesus has promised to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. To make the sad things come untrue. To make all things new once again. This is the hope that we have in God. And this is why the appropriate response to the disasters and the devastations of our lives is always to repent and to return. Now, before I get to the application of of what we do with this message of Joel in our lives, let me take a moment and be very clear about something that I think is very important for us to be incredibly clear on and to understand. For I am not saying, hear what I'm not saying, I am not saying that every time that you experience hardship or suffering in this life, that it is because God is doing it to you as a discipline or a punishment for your sins. That was the case in Joel. And it may sometimes be the case in your lives as well, in our lives as well. But we must be very careful and very clear to say that that is not always the case. And there are a number of examples in the Scriptures where this is made clear. For in the book of Job, for example, Job suffers greatly. Experiencing the loss of his children and his cattle and his crops and his health. 
And yet the scriptures make very clear at the beginning of that story that Job was a blameless and upright man. His suffering was not a punishment by God for his sins. Instead, it was the work of the devil attempting to destroy Job and his witness of love for God. Now, the Lord allowed that to happen. And there's mystery about how all of that happens in, in, the, in the sovereignty of God, that he allowed it, but he did not send it. But likewise, in our gospel reading today from Luke chapter 13, Jesus recounts two events of significant suffering that his audience was clearly aware of and concerned about. One was caused by the evil of a man when Pilate had killed a number of Galileans and mixed their blood with his sacrifices. The other was a random accident when a tower fell on 18 people and killed them. In both of those instances, Jesus makes very clear that these tragedies were not suffered because the victims were worse than anyone else. These weren't punishments that they were receiving for any particular sin. Instead, they were consequences of living in a fallen and broken world with fallen and broken people. And so we must be very careful in assigning responsibility or intention in the suffering of this life. God is clear that sometimes it comes from Him, but other times He makes very clear that it doesn't. So outside of what we are told in the Scriptures, clearly told in the Scriptures, we simply do not know. And as a result, we should not presume. And yet, and yet, in each of those cases whether they knew the intention behind their suffering or not, God's desired response for His people was the same. He still calls them to returning and to repentance. In the Gospel reading, Jesus said, these events weren't anyone's fault, but repent or else you will likewise perish. Job was blameless and upright. His suffering wasn't his fault. Yet in the end, what God wanted was for Job to be humble before him. And so whether we think we can discern a purpose in our suffering or not, our response to the destruction and to the devastations of our lives should really always be the same. They should cause us to draw close to the Lord in lament and in repentance and in dependence upon Him. Because ultimately all of our suffering is a result of some form of sin and brokenness in this world. Whether like the locusts, our suffering is sent by God to bring correction. Or like Job, our suffering is caused by Satan who wants to destroy us. Or like the Galileans, and our suffering is, it comes at the hands of evil men and their wickedness. Or like those crushed by the tower in Siloam. Or swept away by the waters in Indonesia. Our suffering... It can come from accidents and natural disasters caused by, by a creation which has been subjected to the futility of the fall. But one way or another, it is all ultimately because of sin and evil. The world doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. And our lives don't work the way that they are supposed to work because of sin. Because collectively as a species, we have rejected God and His ways. And as a result... An appropriate response to that reality and to its effect on us and on our world is always to lament and to repent and to return. Because ultimately, whether we know the reason 
for our suffering or not. The Lord wants to use it to draw us back to himself. It's as C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so Scottish theologian Samuel Rutherford encourages that, that each cross, each trial of suffering that we face in life, each cross that we have to bear should be looked in the face seven times and read over and over and over again because it is the messenger of the Lord and it speaks something. He's exhorting us to consider our suffering and how the Lord wants to use it in our lives. This is the whole point of the book of Joel. That the Lord wants to use the suffering that we experience as a result of sin to draw us back to Himself in order that He might bless us. And so as we conclude, I want to leave you with a, a few questions that I think would be helpful to consider that may help to apply this message to our own lives today. Here they are. What is the Lord saying to you through the locust plagues of your life? What words of rebuke or challenge or hope or love does God want you to hear as you face the devastation that sin brings into your life? What consequences of sin might the Lord be using in your life to warn you to change your ways? What have you lost because of sin and its effect on your life that the Lord wants to restore to you through your lament and your repentance and your returning? What blessing might God want to leave behind for you as you submit your life to Him? Send those questions to you this week. I know that's more than you can write in a moment. These are good questions to ask. And they can apply to to any area of our life. We should apply them to any area of our lives where we're facing the sufferings from sin. Church, as you face difficulties in this life, remember the proclamation of the prophet Joel. Return to the Lord, your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. For who knows whether He will not relent and leave behind a blessing. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. May we do so in our lives. For God's glory and for our good.